Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 4. Today, we're going to look together at the first 12 verses of this chapter. As you read through the Acts of the Apostles, uh, you'll see various persecutions. You'll see the apostles beaten, imprisoned, even stoned to death in the case of Stephen. And here in our passage today, we are presented with the very first instance of persecution faced by the early church. Before we look at it, let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word and as it is preached, we pray that you would do marvelous things. We know that in your word and in the preaching of it, there is power, power that you give. Father, we ask that you would work this morning, that you would give illumination to us, that you would give us boldness, and that we would rest not only in the uh, the uh, resurrection of Christ, but the, also the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Give us, give us boldness and give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We get in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple... And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, who were all of the high priestly family. When they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Peter and John are preaching to a crowd in the outer courts of the temple complex when suddenly the temple authorities descend upon them and arrest them and lock them up until they can be questioned the following morning. 
They could have just made a mental note and said, all right, we're going to come get you boys in the morning. But no, they wanted to go ahead and give them a night to think about it. Remember the context of this whole narrative. We've talked about it for the past couple weeks. Peter and John were going to the temple to pray one afternoon. They encounter a man who'd been unable to walk from birth, sitting on a mat at the temple gate, begging for spare change in order to buy food. Peter and John, instead of giving him cash, heal him by the name and power of Jesus. And Peter reaches down and grabs this lame man's arm and helps him stand to his feet for the first time in his life. And this man, overcome with joy, goes with them into the temple, we're told, walking and leaping and praising God. This drew a crowd, as you would expect. They would have been familiar with this man. He'd probably been laying beside the gate every day for decades. And now here he is, walking and leaping and praising God. The crowd wanted to know, how was this possible? And the apostles took this opportunity to give credit to the Lord and to tell these bystanders the good news of the gospel. Well, what we see today is that all this commotion has not only drawn the attention of the crowd, but also the attention of the temple authorities, and not only their attention, but also their ire. Those who were in charge, those who were important, those who had power, at least those with earthly power. They became aware of what was going on, what was being said, and were told that they were greatly annoyed. So they shut it down. They had Peter and John and most likely the man who had been healed, arrested and locked up for the night. I want to introduce you to these authorities who opposed Peter and John in proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Luke mentions 11 different individuals and and groups. In verse 1, we're told uh, the priests are mentioned. From the scholars I read, they, they don't believe this, are just the normal Levites who would come in from the country and serve three weeks in the temple. No, this was the priestly caste of Jerusalem. Then you have the captain of the temple mentioned in verse 1. There was a Jewish police force that occupied the temple. Romans did not go into the temple. They didn't want Gentiles defiling the temple. So there were Jewish officers, uh, guards who policed the temple. Probably the same guards who arrested Jesus in the garden. Their captain has come. Then... The Sadducees, we'll talk more on them in a moment. I want you to know more about them. Uh, You might begin to like the Pharisees more uh, when you learn more about the Sadducees. Then in verse 5, we're told rulers, people in various positions of authority. Maybe these are the government department heads or committee heads. You know, that could pull a few strings and... Make things happen. Elders. These are the distinguished older men who lived in the city. were very influential. They, they were present and along with scribes. The ones whose job it was. These are uh, the ones. It, it was their job to know and copy the scriptures. 
In verse 6, we're told of Annas. He is the true high priest. He had been deposed by the Romans years earlier and replaced with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But in Israel, high priests are high priests for life. And he was still alive. And so in the minds of the people, he was still the true high priest. They didn't care what the Romans said. Then you had Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, who was installed by the Romans as the high priest. Both of these men, by the way, Annas and Caiaphas, conspired in the trial of Jesus. Jesus appeared before both of them, if you remember. And then we're told of John and Alexander, members of the high priestly family. And presumably number 11 is you have the rest of the high priest family where a contingent from that family gathered. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the Sadducees, and I want to give them some special attention because most likely you're unfamiliar with them. Uh, They sprung up kind of in this intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. And a lot of the persecution we're going to see going forward in the book of Acts comes at the hands of the Sadducees. So I just want to introduce you to them. The Sadducees were ruthless politicos. If the Pharisees disdained Jesus for theological reasons, the Sadducees disdained Jesus for mostly political reasons. They were a small group of powerful people who had aligned themselves very closely with the Romans, the occupying force in Israel. And surely there was some thought in their mind that they'd done this for the good of their people and so that their people uh, would survive and their nation would survive. If Israel was going to make it, they needed to make nice with the Romans. So they didn't want anyone ruffling Roman feathers. They didn't want anyone attracting undue Roman attention. They drew very close to the Romans and this made them powerful. Additionally, besides aligning themselves with the Romans, they could be described as materialistic rationalists. Unlike the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They sound very modern, don't they? They didn't believe in angels, demons, miracles, nothing that they could not see or touch were here. What were their views on the Messiah? Commentator Kent Hughes wrote that as far as their views on the Messiah were concerned, they were not looking for a literal Messiah. To them, the Messiah was an ideal, kind of an archetype figure, just an ideal, and the Messianic age was a process. Hughes continues summing them up, and he says that these men had gained special ascendancy during the intertestamental Maccabean period. During subsequent political regimes, they created a priestly nobility. They were educated, wealthy elite. They were unprincipled collaborationists, political sycophants who would sell their mothers to stay in power. Though a minority, they controlled Jewish political and religious life. They were evil control freaks and did not want anyone rocking the boat. End quote. 
Those were the Sadducees, those who were in control of Jewish political and religious life. And it might, it might seem strange to have someone in control of religious life who was a materialist, who didn't believe in the resurrection, who didn't believe in the supernatural. Unfortunately, we have a lot of uh, professors and um, faculty at seminaries in our country who view the same, they have the same views. They're in a place of prominence and a place of teaching, and yet they, they don't hold to the historic faith. So that's the opposition. That's who's gathered against Peter and John, this, this massive group of very influential people. Satan is really throwing everyone and everything he has at these two apostles. Because hear this. There is nothing the enemy fears more than men and women boldly and zealously telling unbelievers about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing he fears more. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon and filled the church. The gospel is going forth. And in response, an opposition is mounted and the powers of darkness conspire together in hopes that the infant church might be strangled in her crib. Satan is taking this threat to himself and his kingdom very seriously, and yet he fails. Luke shows us this failure in verse 4. Here you have this powerful cadre of all the elite, powerful insiders of Jerusalem who are bound and determined to silence the gospel, yet ironically, what does Luke write in verse 4? But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So just a few weeks earlier, 3,000 came to faith on Pentecost. Now the number has multiplied to 5,000, and notice we're told 5,000 men. What about women and children? What about the rest of the household? We're talking about way more than just 5,000 believers. We're probably in excess of 12 to 14, maybe even 15,000. When we read verse 4, we need to ask ourselves the question of, do we really believe that the power of God is more powerful than the rulers and influential of this world? Jesus Christ made the statement in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Do we believe that? And if we, can't, if we claim to believe it, then why do our lives so often look as though the powers of the world are more powerful than our God? Here's a question all of us need to think about. Who are the Sadducees that terrify you? Who are the elites? Who are the human authorities? Who are the influential families that intimidate you? You're intimidated by their power, their perceived power. So you change the way you talk and the way you act around them. 
you don't speak honestly around them. You are intimidated to speak about the things of God around them. Who are those people in your life? Do you really believe that the power of God is more powerful than the power of man? I want to quote a lengthy section from, the, uh, from Paul's writings in 2 Timothy 1. It's slightly a paraphrase. Paul uh, says, Never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the gospel. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time. To show his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illumined the way of life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I am not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. Do we believe that? Do we believe that our God cannot fail and that his church cannot fail? And that the gates of hell will not prevail against it? We will face persecution. But we need to remember what our God can do in persecution. Our God can use our faithfulness in the midst of opposition to do two things. Number one, embolden fellow believers. And number two, draw unbelievers to himself. He, he will use our faithfulness in the midst of opposition to encourage others. To encourage other brothers and sisters in the faith to stand firm in, in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He uses us to encourage them and to instill boldness, but also to draw unbelievers to himself. It's not all about encouraging the church. It's also about adding to the church. That's what we see the Lord bring about in Acts, emboldening believers and drawing unbelievers. We see in verse 4 that the opposition did not succeed, and the opposition will not succeed today either. And we need to live like we really believe it. We talked about the opposition facing Peter and John, but we haven't talked really about the why. Why were they so upset? You'd think they would be happy. Here is this poor man who has been crippled from birth, and now he's healed. Why aren't they excited? Luke tells us in verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So two reasons. Number one, they're mad because here are a couple uneducated rubes teaching people with authority in the temple. And that's our job. 
That's our, we're the ones teaching. We're the ones in positions of authority. We're the ones attracting attention and marveling or causing people to marvel. You're stealing our authority. This was something they couldn't stand about Jesus. Jesus did not go to their schools. He didn't run in their circles. He did not occupy a position of worldly prominence, and yet he taught with authority. And when he taught, crowds would flock to him and they would marvel at his teaching. And these religious authorities couldn't stand it. On one occasion, they sent these same temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. We see this in John 7. But we're told that his preaching was so powerful, the guards couldn't do it. They could not arrest him. And so they returned to their bosses empty-handed and said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They couldn't tolerate Jesus, the Nazarene, teaching with authority, and they wouldn't tolerate his disciples doing the same. The second reason they're greatly annoyed is that these unschooled bumpkins are proclaiming the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't like that because if true, it meant that they had some major theological problems. They'd misread the scriptures. They'd completely missed the Messiah, and not only had they missed him, but they'd conspired against him in his execution. So the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like this. It implicated them. And then you have the Sadducees who didn't like this because, remember, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. All that exists is the material world. And so here are people teaching nonsense. And additionally, all this talk about the resurrected Lord could aggravate Roman authorities. Talk of a king and Lord could mean trouble for the state of Israel. So they'd better be quiet. As we read, this annoyance was what led to Peter and John being jailed. It gave them a night to think about it. And then the following morning, Peter and John and the man who had been healed, they're brought out in front of this large group of inquisitors. And they're asked, by what power or by uh, what name did you do this, healing this man? Now, do they really want to know? Are their motives pure here? Are they simply curious? No, I believe they're just hoping Peter and John will give them an excuse to do what they'd already done to Jesus. Give them an opportunity to speak a few words, to to dig themselves into a hole that they can't get out of. All they needed was a few words they could twist, and that would be, Enough to bury these men. So what does Peter do? Does he plead the fifth? Just remain silent? Or he takes the bait and he says, I'll bite. The only thing you could have possibly arrested us for is this miracle. For doing good to this poor man who was lame. And that's not a crime as much as we're aware But if you really want to know by whose name and whose power this man was healed, then we'll tell you. And not only you, we want everyone to know. This man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
And I can imagine the evil smirks that were now being exchanged among these authorities. We thought we got them. That, that, that's all we needed to hear. Now, how could Peter be so bold? These were the same people who condemned Jesus. These were the same people who terrified Peter only months earlier. The same people that caused Peter to swear and curse and deny Christ three times. And now all of a sudden he's bold. Where did that come from? Verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting what those words mean, filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can do a word search on them. You can look up that phrase in Scripture, and what you'll find is that whenever someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to boldly speak truth about Jesus Christ. Look it up. Every time you read someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak the truth and the wonders of of God and His Son. Now, at some point, that's changed. When you hear that someone is filled with the Spirit, where does your mind go? Maybe to a more charismatic context. Um, someone is singing or dancing or a- acting in a way um, that brings, brings attention to themselves. And you say, oh, that person's filled with the Spirit. We need to reclaim this phrase. We reclaim what it means. Every time we're told someone is filled with the Spirit, what we read is that they're boldly speaking about Jesus Christ. Are we filled with the Spirit? Are we unapologetically sharing the good news of the gospel? Are we unintimidated by our Sadducees or powerful earthly uh, leaders that might cause us grief? Speaking about Jesus boldly in those contexts, that's, that's being filled with the Spirit. Well, Peter is filled with the Spirit and he, he tells them, This man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. Notice there is not a period after Jesus of Nazareth. What is there? There's a comma. He's going to keep on going. And he continues in his boldness with four specific things. Number one, they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Not only does he answer their question... He says, uh, he, he says uh, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. It was you who put the Messiah to death. The very one that the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the very one that he put forth as Lord and Christ, you put to death. Why would they do this? We need to remember that antipathy towards the maker resides in every human heart. That's how they were able to do this. Paul uses the language saying that we are by nature children of wrath. 
this antipathy towards God, this hostility resides in every human heart. It even resides in religious hearts. These are religious people. These are religious leaders. No doubt you could have done a poll in Jerusalem and found a a lot of people who would point at Annas and Caiaphas and say, those are men of God. And yet they were the two who conspired against Jesus. Religious fervor, religious devotion is a wonderful thing when its object and affection is Jesus Christ. But remove Christ and this is what you get. Power hungry, wicked people who are upset and threatened because a crippled man has been healed and credit has gone to someone else. Peter tells his accusers they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. He also tells them that God raised him from the dead. His resurrection serves as a proof of many things. It's a proof that these religious authorities had failed. They'd failed to keep him in the grave. His resurrection also proved that he was who he said he was. The Son of God, Savior and sinners, the one who was uh, one with the Father, his identity was confirmed. And we can look at the empty tomb. You know, this distinguishes Jesus Christ from every other religious leader in history. So you can go down the list. Zoroaster is dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. The Buddha is dead. Joseph Smith Jr. is dead. But Jesus Christ is alive. The same God these men claim to serve raised his son from the dead. And we remember that because he lives, we will live also. You know, there are terms we, uh, terms we say and phrases we say. There's one in youth ministry that drove me crazy. You only live once. <laughs> Don't say that. It's not consistent with the Christian's hope of the life to come. Even bucket list. I got to hit everything on my list before I kick the bucket. Why? What happens after you kick the bucket? Do you cease to exist? Or is there a life to come? Because Jesus lives, we will live also. The third thing Peter boldly states is that Christ is the cornerstone. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is saying, all all you important folks, you leaders of Israel, you elders, you priests, you rulers, you protectors of the people, you should be the builders. You should assist in the building of the church, but what did you do? You rejected the cornerstone. You rejected the foundation. Matthew Henry says, Here was a stone offered you to be put in the chief 
place of the building to be the main pillar on which the fabric might entirely rest. But you set it at naught. You rejected it. Would not make use of it, but threw it by as good for nothing, but to make a stepping stone of it. But this stone has now become the head of the corner. God has raised up Jesus whom you rejected and by setting him at his right hand has made him both the center of unity and the foundation of power. These leaders were entrusted with the care of the people and yet they'd rejected the very foundation that God had established and given them, Jesus Christ. The fourth thing Peter boldly says is that Jesus is the only way. We see this in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, there are a lot of things about the gospel the world does not like. The world doesn't like the assertion of human guilt. Doesn't like the, the, the need of confession and repentance. But the world really hates this, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that there is one path that leads to life and every other path leads to eternal destruction. And the world hates this because it's saying, human being, man, woman, you cannot save yourself. And you cannot choose your own way. You cannot choose your own path. If you are going to be saved, it's going to be by the means that God has appointed, namely his son. And the natural man hates that. R.C. Sproul in his commentary wrote this. He said, the American truth today is that what you believe does not matter so long as you are sincere. And there are many roads that go to heaven. Some go directly and some by a more circuitous route. But in the final analysis, all that God is really concerned about is that we be people of faith. I cannot think of a principle more plainly and categorically opposed to the universal teaching of sacred scripture than that idea. Now, it would be easy to spend my closing three or four minutes just on that idea. It's something for us to be aware of, for sure. And it would be easy for me to spend the rest of my time just hammering that and uh, hammering culture, our culture, and hammering postmodernism and Oprah and her likes that teach that there are many roads to the top of the mountain. But I'm not preaching to a secular pluralistic world right now. I'm preaching to a group of people in a PCA church and to anyone who in their spare time is listening to a sermon podcast. So I'm not going to hammer on Oprah. Instead, I want to ask you, you wonderfully orthodox Presbyterians, you need to know that there's salvation in no one else and nothing else other than Jesus Christ alone. Now, we can be very sneaky about this. There can be good things that 
we can place a little too much comfort in, possibly think they merit our salvation. You need to know that your parenting, no matter how good or bad your parenting, will not save you. Your giving to this church, you are a very generous church, very generous. Your giving will not save you. You need to know that your adherence to an agreement with Reformed theology and the Westminster Standards will not save you. Your volunteering and your service in the community, your good works you do for Corinth, many of you do them, those do not save you. Your faithfulness to your spouse will not save you. On and on I could go. What are the things within yourself that tempt you to trust in them apart from Christ alone? What are those things? We need, we need to know them and be aware of them because they will not save us and we need not put our trust in them. Salvation is found in no one else and no other name apart from Jesus Christ. Peter tells us here that this gospel message is an exclusive one. Someone might say to you, well, the, the, you make the Christian faith sound very exclusive. It is. It is very exclusive. There's only one way. There's only one way to forgiveness of sins and peace with God and eternal life. There is one way, but it is open to all. The call goes to all. And whosoever will believe, they will be delivered from sin's power and sin's penalty. And that's what we need the most. We don't need, uh, we don't, what we need the most is not self-help and self-esteem and self-improvement. What we need is to be saved from sin and its consequences. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him. Father God, we ask for a boldness, a a trust in what you have done for us on the cross, a trust in what Jesus has accomplished, and a trust in that he rose from the grave and is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God, and all power and all authority and all might has been given to him. And that kings and rulers and princes and authorities, they're like water in his hand. He can tilt it one way or another and they simply follow his smallest movement. Father, would we trust in him? Would we speak boldly? Would you fill us with the spirit that we would not shrink back intimidated to tell the truth about who Jesus Christ is? Father, we acknowledge the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus Christ has done what no other human being in in history was able to do. To die on the cross, to take the sins of his church, the sins of his people upon himself, all of them through all time and all history from all tribes and tongues and nations and people. To take those upon himself and to fully absorb your wrath on the cross, the just punishment for sin. And then... Stay in the tomb for three days, 
but rise by your power. Father, the gospel is exclusive because there is only one Jesus Christ. The gospel is exclusive because there's only one Savior. Would we trust in him, in him alone, and not ourselves and our faithfulness and our good works and our obedience? Would we trust in him? And Father, would you use us? Just as you used Peter and John, would you use us, this uh, wonderful local church here in Corinth, Mississippi, would you use us to accomplish your purposes? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.